0: This is the Henry George Program. I am Mark Molyneux, joined by co-host Jacob Schwartz lucas This is a program identifying problems and solutions in the Bay Area housing crisis and beyond. We look at ideas of the 19th century American journalist and economist Henry George and have conversations and roundtables. Today on the program, Max Kapczynski of Palo Alto Forward. We are talking Palo Alto. It's a full hour of Palo Alto. Welcome to the
1: show, Max. Oh, thanks. It's good to be here.
0: Yeah, so, uh,. So Max and I, we uh, we met just the other week. This was at a time in which I went to the Palo Alto City Council. Always a very fun place to blow off steam. Uh, they were uh, doing a uh, final, uh, starting to finalize the comprehensive plan in Palo yeah, Alto,
1: reviewing the environmental impact report and some other stuff for it.
0: Yeah. So a few days before this, I got an email from. Palo Alto Forward, which is, I guess, as far as the Yes in My Backyard YIMBY groups around here, pro-development, Palo Alto Forward is what we have in Palo Alto. And it was saying, more or less, this is about as good as we're going to see. We recommend that you tell city council to accept this plan. And I guess you know the question is, when do you compromise? And Because, and, I mean, I just think the comprehensive plan that they're determining on is fairly business as usual for Palo Alto. That's how it seems to me, but I think sometimes I tend to be uh, maybe a bit, uh, take a take a hard line. <laughs> uh, so as far as y- you know, what brought you to Palo Alto forward, and what were your thoughts as you were seeing this comprehensive plan come into uh, place here?
1: Well, Palo Alto is the, the city that I live in. I am I am renting here, and I have been for the last year and a half or so. Um, I joined EMB Action a while ago. And while they are a more regional group, they do focus more on San Francisco. they don't often make it down here um and I wanted to do what I could here in my own city. I don't make it up to to San Francisco that often um, and as far as the comprehensive plan, business as usual is um, is almost all that one can hope for when there's such a strong contingent that's against any kind of progress or against any kind of any kind of development at all. so there is a whole um NIMBY component showing up, speaking very strongly against it, implying that it was not just business as usual, but a catastrophic uh, overdevelopment and a disaster for Palo Alto when really we just want to get the thing passed. I think it's decent. I think it could do good work and we need a comprehensive plan. It's seven years overdue.
0: Yeah. So, Palo Alto residents believe Palo Alto is already being Manhattanized. Oh, that word. <laughs> yeah. So, which, I mean, the thing is Palo Alto, uh, medium uh, medium house cost in Palo Alto, $2.7 million. So, if you say that there is overdevelopment right now in Palo Alto, you have to kind of ask, how can you quantify that? And if- the if the money is saying two point seven million dollars is what you pay for for like a you know, tear downs cost two million dollars. There's something going on with the amount of land in Palo Alto that's available that there isn't affordability for for housing units. Uh, I mean, and I guess it seems a very strange place that people can come from and they can say there's already too much development. And I guess the question is, what can a person do to say? You know here's a plan that sure it, I think it is possibly the very best doable plan, considering the parameters, but you know what can a young person do not just to say, let's do the best compromise we can and instead of saying, let's get let's get housing down from two point seven million dollars to something people can actually afford
1: well, getting it down, getting the price down is the is of course the only kind of goal that we could get to that would. That would normalize the situation. That would help. That would help everyone. That would defuse this crazy, this crazy business that's going on. Um, but every, everyone with a stake in the game and everyone, everyone uh, watching it, everyone involved in it is, is um, I think, is scared. Is scared and um, and doesn't really know what to do. People who are homeowners are, I mean, they're they're certainly they're sitting on a very valuable piece of land. So keeping that valuable and keeping it theirs is, is of course a factor in keeping the kind of Palo that they have seen for 30 years, keeping that the same is, is important to them as well. But I, it's those kinds of things that the people are attached to that are keeping it this way.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, here's something that, uh, you know, Kim, I Cutler was retweeting on the day from, uh, from Mayor Ed Lee of of San Francisco. The GOP's tax plan hurts middle-class families and reduces important funding measures for cities like San Francisco. This is what Ed Lee was saying and there's a picture saying your taxes go up, your home values go down.
1: To me that's a good thing, but I don't own a home.
0: Yeah, and that's a I mean that's the kind of thing out there. The overall message how many people are saying the goal is to drive home values down because like Obama one of his last things
1: saying like he was saying Let's show the economy is doing well in the country. Rising home values was one of those things. That's a scary thing. I mean, in an America where everyone owns a home, it's great. In an America where fewer and fewer people are buying new homes, especially young people, it's a terrible thing. And where people, it's starting to lock people into their homes, especially in a system like California's with such perverse incentives. I mean, this was, this was one of the foundational
0: things for getting middle-class wealth everybody is, well, if everybody owns a home, everybody can be rich. And we're kind of seeing the point that even people who are doing pretty damn well as far as income goes are still never going to own a home. Around yeah, here. or they're
1: just absolutely strapped down in debt. And I think that if people are renting right now, um, they're minimally exposed to the to the the downsides that would come with reducing housing prices. And I mean, to someone who's a renter, it seems quite clear: more development, lower cost of living, lower home values. But it gets very complicated when you're trying to appeal to people who do own homes, especially if they're new buyers, because if home values went down, they would be in a very bad place.
0: So I guess here's the point where I say I don't see the point of really working with Palo Alto, is the fact Palo Alto City Council, what is their job? Their job is to deliver value to the people who vote for them. Who votes for them? Primarily homeowners in Palo Alto. Yeah, and what do they value? What do they value? High home values.
1: Yeah, and- Keeping Palo Alto the same.
0: Exactly. I mean, they they want they want one high home values are always great, but even when you live here, you want a high. You know, they want delivering public goods to Palo Alto, which is Road schools. low density. You know, schools that work, low density roads, just basically the atmosphere of a classic mid century. Open suburb. space. Yeah. Exactly, and that's what they want. And city council is very good at delivering that to them, and we're seeing this all over the Bay Area and all, really all over the country in a lot of kind of uh, exclusionary suburbs like this, is you have city council who are only accountable to people who really want to keep people out. And they're doing a great job of that. And I guess the question is, if you're someone who is either a renter in Palo Alto, who is really a voice that city council doesn't pay extremely strong heed
1: to- It's a rare and dying breed, a Palo Alto renter.
0: Yeah, I and mean, I'm sure they wouldn't be that sad if they just disappeared as a whole. It oh, I'm sure, yeah. Uh and, you know, or if you're someone who is outside looking in, you can't really say, "Hey, look into your heart, find some, you know, compromise for us when people have a, every incentive uh
1: not to." Exactly. Which... The incentives are really structured against against um building more in your town, bringing in more people. There's the money's already tight for the city and city council. They know that building more houses and also more commercial property, yeah. which is an important distinction. Palo Alto's got this, people talk, even the NIMBYs talk about the um, the jobs housing imbalance. Sure. That nominally they'd be okay with building more housing, but it's building more commercial that they want to clamp down on. That was the big um, affront with the uh, comprehensive plan.
0: But it's funny that they want to try to draw a the ratio down. The ratio, they want to drive it Closer to one to one, at least you could say. Mm. I mean, that should be a goal for every city, especially the cities that are unaffordable. But
1: even their most optimistic plan still didn't even have parity for jobs to to house them. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, they're anti-development. They would rather see no commercial development and no housing development than building more housing to to bridge the gap. And uh, well, and I guess, but why do you, they
0: have commercial? If I mean, they don't really want it in itself; they well, want it for other
1: reasons. It it some of them work in those commercial, like in the Stanford Research Park. Yeah. And if you can live and work in Palo Alto, that's a pretty good situation. And people would probably want to, you know, at least keep the status quo with as long as their job is not being called I, into question. Yeah,
0: I mean, and I think that matters to an extent. But I think on top of that, you do have a lot of people who just say, "Well, I don't really." you know all things equal i'd rather just have even less activity yeah uh but this delivers a lot of money
1: it does it delivers a huge amount of tax money that they don't get from from residential property
0: because palo alto pays less per person as as a percentage of their of their property values than any city in california
1: that does not surprise me
0: because it is disproportionately people who have been here for decades and decades which we have a you know in Prop 13 uh, in this whole system in California, the longer you're here, the less you pay in taxes. Essentially, Wh- yeah, yeah, which is it's you can kind of see very broad pictures how this starts to resemble something you can call feudalism. Makes <laughs> sense.
1: And I think that is a very the thing I mentioned earlier um, appealing to young appealing appealing to young people, appealing to people who want to get involved in politics or maybe maybe don't know it yet um but that l- new home buyers are very exposed to the the bad parts of the housing market and if the value went down they'd really be hurt i think it could you can really strongly reach them about prop 13 maybe even stronger than renters um if you explain to them because a lot of a lot of people who buy homes all of a sudden become very money minded become very conservative become very interested in keeping their home values that way but if you appeal to them and tell them that they are disproportionately bearing the tax burden you can if someone's conservative you can reach into their brain like that and tell them because of Prop 13, you are bearing tax way more, by a factor of you know two, four, five, than long-time homeowners who are only getting benefits.
0: Yeah, I mean, and people say like if you look at the Bay Area, who who are the people who own the lands and who are the landless? But it's not just like people own it outright. People own a claim to pay off a debt on the on yes. what they bought for. 30 years, a lot of people are like, okay, I'll be paying off this $3 million property for 30 years. And why are they doing that? It's because they hope down the line it will retain its value and they will, you know, pay, you know, and they will get more down the line. And exactly.
1: Yet, they can buy into the game.
0: And you really have to ask, how long can this go on? I mean, because every time you need
1: it, you need new suckers to get on this. It's a, it's a pyramid scheme. <laughs> people- it, it really is. And in the same breath, people that uh, mock the situation that happened in 2008, 2009. Oh, they're not like, like the, the home, the people who were suckered into buying homes. Well, those people, oh, they bought two or three homes. They didn't have the money to back it up. I'm intelligent. I'm rich or whatever. I can buy a home and I can get into this system and I won't be, won't be ruined the same way that people were ruined in 2008, 2009. But I really think that that's, that's foolish logic.
2: Even those people who do own homes, um, the the banks are extracting a a lot of a lot of that increase in property value, paying off debts, as opposed to you know they own it outright and they're just like that supply is being held so low.
0: Yeah, I mean you pay a lot more down the line when when the banks are are uh, getting a, a big cut on the the more you put into it. But yeah, it took I a- wonder
2: how racially motivated it is too, though, because you just don't you don't want poor people moving in your you know in your neighborhood oftentimes those people are not going to be oh, white
0: I'm Palo Alto I mean Palo Alto if you don't know like how this works there's East Palo Alto uh just a little bit uh you know away from Palo Alto The other but, side of the highway other side of the highway but they want it to be as you know other side of the world as possible they they uh, the first time I really sat down in Palo Alto for a long time, uh, there was a talk about people parking overnight in Palo Alto. And this was a reference to people from East Palo Alto, uh, largely who got kicked out of, like, they closed down a, a parking lot near apartment building so that a lot of people started parking in Palo Alto. And people acted like it was, you know, Night of the Living Dead or something. It was the scariest thing in their mind that dark skinned people were parking in their neighborhood. There's people, uh, there was just so much dog whistling. Uh, which I don't. I mean, it's it's really, really, uh, yeah. I was I was talking to a, a, a chief engineer here at the station, saying that they were going out to the uh, some Palito parks and they saw people who weren't Palito residents playing in the park. And you know, he's saying it's like, well, how did they know that they weren't Palito residents? And I think there was there's a you know an external sign that they were tending to use as a uh as as a clue that they were not residents uh of a different class and 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 usually ethnic lines um yeah, but- I mean we, we want to
2: act like we don't you know use these racially motivated you know, ways of ways of doing things like redlining anymore. Like you know, that's all in the past. Oh, we, we fixed uh, all people that. aren't racist. Yeah, anymore.
1: we're but liberal. Of here. course this it is. is a liberal city.
0: So I think that's the thing about Palo Alto that I really like, love blowing off steam by going there. Is that they say like, oh, it's like all people are welcome. We are, you know, this is, you know, we are we are a green city that is, you know, open to all kinds of people. We're, like we support sanctuary city, sanctuary state, things, but they want to really do as little as possible to change a way of life to accommodate any of this oh it's true yeah
2: you're welcome to come so long as you can overcome all of the hurdles we've
1: intentionally set up to keep you out and we'll continue keeping them to keep you out it, they will never stop trying to keep people out yes it's like watching someone who is against affirmative action harp on about how they how you have to be qualified and well if they were if they were qualified they would be here like that like the the very situation that you see is business is is correct is correct functionally Functioning correctly,
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, they never question the system that brought them to where they are today. That's taken for granted. But then you have to kind of signal on what is what is good, what is what is bad beyond that. But it's a it's a very kind of weird situation. I mean, because you hear kind of the Yimby talk up in the city, you tend to see the blowback is against uh, anti gentrification people. And there's really a lot of I, I think there's a lot. of, both sides have to say which is more or less valid. In that Yimby people are saying we need to build more. Not building more is not an option, and they're correct. And the people who are fighting gentrification say, well, you know, we tend to be disproportionately screwed by this, and they're correct. They're absolutely correct. That, true. That they're bearing the blame, and that really, in you know, in the immediate term, they will basically get the short end of the stick to just make things to make things balance, make things work. Over in, like, the mid-peninsula, you don't get that same kind of righteous blowback. You just get people who have everything, who still are anti-development, even though they are the richest people, the most well-off people. But, they like, it's kind of very strange that they are able to run this without any kind of moral base.
1: Oh, well, it's it's morals seem to have gone completely out of the picture, and it's all financial at this point, even for a lot of the people in the city who are part of anti-gentrification groups. Um, Kim Mike Cutler um, framed it in this way, that people who are on rent control, which there are a ton of in the city, and people who are protected disproportionately by Prop 13 are both being insulated from the housing crisis. They have their place. They see costs going up all around them. They're afraid of being displaced or of losing what little they have in case of a rent control uh, someone with a rent-control apartment, or what huge amount they have, in the case of someone with a really valuable home. And they're both afraid of development. So they, they work, even though they would claim to be against each other or in conflict, they're both working against development and so perpetuating the crisis.
0: Yeah, we talked back in like the 70s, some of the the real times that you know, rent-control and then property were enacted, and you see the same kind of thing, saying everything has become unaffordable, things are bad for us. And what can you do? You can either look for a solution that's going to work or you can protect yourself and say well I got mine let's let's lock myself in and then everyone else down the road they can figure it out <laughs> and that's what california has collectively chosen we've collect you know the people who have housing have always said let's protect what i have stick my head in the sand and never look for a solution and it should not be considered shocking to anybody that the policy of Prop 13 especially has led a complete lack of solutions for the housing crisis to happen.
1: Yeah, because it structures these incentives in this way. And people are acting, unfor- they are acting rationally and they are acting in their self-interest. There's no structure or incentive to have a common good or have a common good be in people's interest or tell them what it is.
0: So let's talk about, you know, what can a person do who who wants to fix things today? I guess I, I have maybe three different paths you can do. One mm. is to, you know, do old-fashioned politics, you know, kind of work with local people, try to make compromise the work in everyone's best interest, and make things happen. I mean, I guess that's what Paul Forward is doing. This is politics in its, you know, kind of... I guess purest form, it's people saying, "Let's
1: find coalitions and fix things." Yeah, and public comment, and trying to get the right people elected, and yeah. trying to get the right things happening at city council. That and that's and that's really important, but it's a, it's a long and difficult and unrewarding process.
0: You need to, I guess, if if uh, well, let's get back to what the chances of this working is. So that's number one is doing politics. Number two is don't do politics locally you know escalate go to the next highest hmm. level which in California's case we're seeing a lot happening in Sacramento and it seems it seems it seems a promising way to subvert what is happening at the local level when the local level seems to be uh, not allowing for politics to do its job and i guess item 3 which is kind of the wild card is appeal to to ideals. <laughs> and I guess that's mm. perhaps what, you know, uh, you know, nut jobs like me try to do is saying, "Hey, but w- of course we can all agree about right and wrong, and if we do this enough, even people who have financial interests will some people will actually fight for what's right." Uh that's I mean, I'll say offhand this is this is a dumb thing to do. Of course, no one's going to think about right and wrong. Uh, but I guess to go back to the first thing, yeah, when you talk about building coalitions in politics, when you have something like Palo Alto where the coalition is all homeowners in their best interest and people who aren't don't have a vote, don't have a say, don't have a voice, it's it's easy to say that a coalition building really has no chance of fixing things. Is there is there a, is there a way you can say? Oh that's too pessimistic. You should be more optimistic. Well here. that
1: is that is what I was about to say. That's a very bleak way of looking at it. And you you kind of have to have a giddy optimism to keep going in these kind of local these local grinds that the this um yeah, the public comments, the hearings, endless endless hearings often during business days. Like a lot of things during in San Francisco certainly during business days in remote parts of the city at all times. And
0: that's one more thing, too. If you're a person getting by in Palo Alto, you probably aren't swimming in free time. If you are a septuagenarian retiree, oh boy, that's the that's the highlight of your week is going to city council. That's like the only thing you have in your schedule. It's a superpower to not be working for a living. Yes, and the,
1: the deck is really stacked against people who uh, are not part of the privileged class and who want to promote... Progressive thinking against the uh, against the status quo.
0: Yeah. So I mean, and okay. So you were starting to say why I shouldn't be pessimistic, but that was a few <laughs> more things saying I should be pessimistic. Uh, g- give, give 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 a rosy picture for how things could work through pure, you know, foot in the ground politics locally.
1: i You show up. You speak your mind. You tell your friends to come with you. Explain to them why they should too. And. The next week, you have more people than you did the last week, and you keep showing up. You say the right things to the right time to the city council, and they start to listen more to, their, to these kind of constituents that they now know are here.
0: So this is something like, I guess, uh, Sonia Trous was saying once. Uh, I'm not sure if I buy it. Uh, so as far part of the feelistic structure of, of the system, when you basically get free land that you don't have to really pay your way back into in California through Prop 13, it goes on to your kids, too. Prop 58 allows your children to get your property, so when, you know, Palo Alto, a generation in the future, it will be the children of Palo Alto, Palo Alto the next generation, and they will still have the low tax burden, and basically will have no incentive not to hold on to the scarce land. Sonia says, it won't be considered, like, cool to live in your parents' house, and she doesn't really see this as being, like, a long-term possibility that you'll have, I guess the classic manner that's passed on from generation to generation, I tend to think, I don't know, if you want to stick around here, I think you're going to suck it up and live in your parents' old house.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, be an absentee landlord living somewhere far, far flung and renting out the place for a lot more and having that cover your entire cost of living. That could be a pretty sweet way to live.
0: Yeah, actually, I mean, that's (laughs) a big part of it too. And I guess that's the plus and minus of a lot of people talking about primary resident uh, mm. know, I guess exemptions. One is, quote unquote, that's what Prop 13 was for. Prop 13 was to protect primary residents, which is it's kind of weird that they allowed so much to go for secondary residents, commercial residents, exactly. absentee landlords, commercial landlords. Yeah. Uh, but even if you do it, is that really possible to kind of you know easily prove that you're living in a place? I, mean, I know a lot of people talk about the ghost the ghost uh, houses of of Palo Alto.
1: I know if San Francisco and New York and London and anywhere with high property uh high property values. Yeah. It, uh, there are rules in some places against it. Vancouver at. Vancouver, like, that's yeah, the one. Yeah, that,
0: that's a big one. They started saying you must show that you're actually living in the place. Hmm. I don't know exactly one. Does that kind of does it make people uncomfortable? There's now like there's already people who try to Even when a house is empty, make you think that there's people in it and doing stuff. It's kind of,
2: I mean, that that can cause all kinds of weird distortion. I know in Australia, there's a group that tries to measure uh, vacancy on the basis of water usage. So in theory, you could, you know, if that's how,
0: leave however they're they're
2: measuring this, you could game it.
0: Yeah, I yeah, there's. Unless you're actually, you actually say a
2: lot of water waste, too.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's there's incentives just are doing all the wrong things. I mean, unless you have the government putting a camera on your window to show that you're hanging out in your living room every night. I don't know any perfect way to do that. I don't think that's the thing a lot of people want. Uh, I know like a lot of politics, people say, I have no problem with these ghost homes. You know, it's like they don't cause traffic. (laughs) They don't
1: cause traffic. They don't (laughs) cause trash. There's no loud neighbors. You'd probably love to have no one living next to you.
0: And actually, it increases your home values. It's actually, if you are a person who just cares about your own material interests, it's it's a win, 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 win. You hope that you have only ghost neighbors, really. Until you get to the point that you like, I guess if you talk about like when a city's on the skids, a place like Detroit, vacancies really tend to be one of the big things that really drive a city just getting worse and worse. You know, because when you have vacancies, you have broken windows, crime happens. I, I think Palo Alto, they don't allow any kind of dilapidated vacancy. They only yes. allow the very well-curated
1: vacancy. Certainly not, yes. I guess, I mean,
2: it's all the people that are making the, the land valuable, right? But if you have too many people leave then you know that that can kind of like take the value out of it and lead to a Detroit type situation but obviously Palo Alto is extremely attractive real estate so i don't see that happening anytime in the near future
1: as long as people will continue to strongly want to live here
0: yeah i mean so what makes palo alto an attractive place to live uh, i mean it would, if you transplanted it and put it in the middle of, you know, Nebraska, it wouldn't be the same. It's the fact that they are a train right away from San Francisco, from San Jose. They can go over to Oakland. I mean, that means all the people who work. It becomes an incredibly attractive job market, first off. And second is, I mean, they, they do, of everything they do get out of their local taxes, it goes into making it a pleasant place to live in low-density living, and that is what makes it attractive. And I guess one of those things, they're like, oh, well, you know, I support my city council to deliver value to me, but they never really consider their obligation to the rest of the region. A Palo Alto that had walls up around it.
1: By law, they have no... Well, if they do have obligations, they are not well enforced. Like RENA yeah. is supposed to be... The regional housing needs is supposed to be an obligation, but it does not seem to be well enforced or people would be following it. Palo Alto is very, very far behind in all segments. So we're talking about the option
0: two, and I guess that is what we're seeing action in. I'm seeing... If you ask me of saying how much hope am I seeing, I mean, I I say I really respect all the work people are doing to make political forward do everything it can do. Uh, But as far as what is actually giving me hope, everything happening in Sacramento is tending to do more to allow things to actually seem like there's some chances of ever driving down housing to affordable levels. And uh, SP-35 is a big thing this year, mm. which you're talking about RENA. Yeah, RENA uh, regional housing needs allocation was just kind of a completely toothless, or, you know- That would of... be the word
1: for it. Yes, toothless.
0: <laughs> it's a goal saying, okay, every city, you must deliver this much housing. And if you don't, do be- to try-,
1: try better next time. Yeah, we will send you a stern letter in the mail. Yeah. Um, and SP-35, if you can- Say more about yeah. It gives it. It gives it some teeth. If it gives it
0: some teeth. So SB thirty five. It if you are falling short of your regional housing uh, goals, uh, SB thirty five will force the city to basically automatically approve any accommodating structure that is it must fit within zoning
1: that fits within and then in palo alto <laughs> they say well gotcha our zoning is incredibly restrictive
0: exactly it's it's how, how can you lose but uh, in cities
1: like san francisco or maybe other other suburbs around here that don't have as strict zoning yeah. that it certainly could be a big win and people in palo alto would love it if that would be the case if everyone else would build except for them and then the housing crisis would be solved and they wouldn't have to do anything but every city council wants that
0: I mean, that's the kind of thing. It's you don't realize how many different gauntlets are going on if you don't really get your, your head. It's like, okay, it's so you want to build. Okay, why don't you go and build? It's like, okay, what's well, illegal? Zoning is legal. It's like, okay, well, there's some places that they're under zones. Even if it is under zoned, and you see this in Palo Alto, it complies with zoning, and then you still have architectural review, which means Karen Holman herself will, you know, redesign your building on the spot uh, and all sorts of, and then just it has, you know, a uh, bulking, it has, its bulk doesn't match the rest of the neighborhood. You you can find any reason...
1: Neighborhood character. Yeah,
0: neighborhood character. I mean, you have different approval processes for different reasons that can give really any rationale to say, let's not allow this building. And the city has every reason to say, let's do that. Uh, you know, Nine times out of 10, that's what... More times than that, that's what the residents want. So, I mean, I guess it's a start, but you do see the fact why not just make it more restrictive?
1: <laughs> exactly. They have every incentive to make it more restrictive. But when you start to go to more city council meetings and you know, all around to San Francisco, Berkeley, Milbrae, and San Jose, all around, um, go to these planning meetings, see what's going on, and see how people respond to it, it can, I suppose, educate you and give you perspective on, on how this works. The people that are involved, you can meet... Um, you can meet people who will teach you important things, who will bring you important places and can direct you in a good way. So if you, as a relatively
2: young person, you know, trying to get other young people to go and uh, be represented at these meetings, you're operating at a disadvantage, right? I mean, I I think this is a problem that the Greeks faced in, you know, (laughs) when, when they were experimenting with like early democracy, right? I think even the word like, like demagogue, stems from, from this problem that, you know, some people in this case, retired people can just hang around these meetings every day. Cause they don't have anything else to do. <laughs> like they don't work. Right. So, you know, if, if you can muster a bunch of people to go with you and help, you know, help you be heard, uh, you know, th- these are rare occurrences, I would assume it, ha- has that been your experience. Do you know how to get around this problem of that? You're just operating from, a, a very like natural uh, disadvantage because you have to work and they don't.
1: The people I've seen break this cycle are the fine folks at EMB Action because some of them work full time for this organization. They're supported by donations and they can all day, every day, go to these meetings that are in, you know, 3 p.m. on a Thursday in the outer sunset and advocate. And that's that's really powerful. Even if it's just a handful of people, they're everywhere all the time. And going to Sacramento and talking and calling people and introducing people to each other—it's very powerful. Even that small handful.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think in the Bay Area, a lot of people are getting to the point they're relatively money rich, time poor. Uh, I mean, not rich enough to get a place, of course, but you know, uh, rich enough to you know support a group like this. And they're basically saying, "Well, I can give other people the time that I lack." And yeah, that's that can be pretty powerful. Uh, and I, I guess you talk about like rebalancing the politics. I think homeowners. They tend to know what the deal is. People who are protected by Prop 13, they get a mailer from the Howard Jarvis Association every year saying, This is why Prop 13 is, you know, is, is saved your soul. This is why Prop 13 keeps you alive. This is why Prop 13 is the best thing that happened to you. Uh, and it's, I mean, the thing is, yeah, they're, they're the people who won. They absolutely were helped by Prop 13. Uh, and people on the other side, they don't really, I, every time I bring it up, I feel how many people have heard of it before? less than five percent oh people very few very very few and it's kind of crazy insofar as this is one of the central factors i mean it's like how many people believe chemtrails are, are poisoning their mind probably a lot more than the people who know the prop 13 is keeping their rents up
1: that's oh man that's an <laughs> I, I wonder that's that's a good thought experiment there how many more people believe conspiracy theories than know the facts about the housing crisis and prop 13 that's mm.
0: i mean i'll say this it's what are the chances of getting people on board when things are really boring? Because, <laughs> I mean, if it you... It is
1: very boring.
0: If you imagine that the government is putting poisons into airplanes and spraying on you, okay, that's exciting. I like that. It's that's... exciting.
1: It's true. And saving tens of thousands of dollars a year is also exciting. That's why people are really in it.
0: <laughs> yeah, but if you say, well, in 1978, the state of California made an amendment you know, restricting the amount of increase on in assessments of all residents, of all, uh, of all, of, of all of landowning, to 2% per annum. You know, it's like people who are already asleep. You know, exactly. people say like, well, this sounds, there's all sorts of boring stuff going on. Every every piece of legislation out there is hundreds of pages. I can't care about all this stuff. And there, I mean, yeah, it's it's a full-time job just to kind of get on page here.
1: It is, exactly. and But that's why I think that despite how futile it might seem, going yeah. to these meetings, meeting people, educating yourself and, and being educated on all of the acronyms and all of the boilerplate and all of the just the enormous expansive stuff there is to know will make you a person better equipped to to do politics and to be political and to get other people involved. I think that it's a continual process and it's it's improving you in ways you don't know until you meet the right person or or learn the right things. So,
0: so to speak, personally, what is, what was your process? Because you're originally from the East Bay, what was your process of kind of being here? And you know, I guess moving over to Palo Alto from the East Bay. But I guess when do you start to know something's not right and s- things that reform is needed? I guess well, what was what was the system of of, of I guess of, of you learning more about these really boring <laughs> policy? Well,
1: I suppose that's that's an interesting question. I mean, when I, I mean, when I was growing up, I suppose um, early two early mid two thousands. I mean, I, I suppose it was certainly bad, but this, is, this had always been sort of an expensive place to live as, as an expensive part of the country. That has always been the case. Um, but I suppose it was, I guess, after high school, after college, when people I knew were leaving town, their families were leaving town, or they were moving back in with their parents, or if they, even if they were able to find jobs. Basically, as I became an, as soon as I became an adult who knew what a job was and knew what rent was, immediately became completely apparent the problem.
0: I imagine, yeah, I mean, was it always normal? You'd see people continue to live with their parents, you know, well into their, you know, adult lives and all that?
1: As soon as I noticed that it was going on for more than, you know, six months of couch surfing, I'm like, there's, there's, a, there's a problem here.
0: Because I guess, like, it's... it's I mean, it's, this is actually,
1: actually typical
2: in, like, Europe, right? People it is, it's true. Do, and I, I wonder, you know, to what degree that's cultural and to what degree that's just because they come from countries that were... Much more feudal than than the United States. I, I, you know, they were officially feudal at one point in their their history.
0: It's the, weird. It's weird to see culture lag, like lag behind. You see it on TV, it's like, oh, that guy lives in his mom's basement. It's still like an insult. It's like, I mean, it is it,
1: a very potent insult.
0: Yeah, and if you're living in Des Moines or something, I think it kind of adds like, oh, you, you know, you're not even willing to work on a pizza delivery job to get out your own rent. But like over here, you could work all day, all night, and you still would probably be, you know, lucky to have your parents, you know, that's, it's, it's a, if you didn't have your parents give you rent, you would just have nothing left to get by. Well, and, it, and even it if it
2: contributes to this idea that, you know, young people shouldn't have a voice in politics, right? It's like, well, if you can't, if you can't afford your own rent, that's probably because you're, you're personally irresponsible. And, uh, you know, so, you know, why should you um, have anything to say about policy
1: exactly there's there's this this just this implication that if someone isn't able to uh, support themselves with a certain standard of living that they're yeah that they're unimportant that they're not valuable and there's a lot of other subtext that goes along with with the shame of, of living in your mom's basement like your relationship status and everything that uh that's still a very powerful stigma and still and people who are forced into that situation are continually ashamed of it and I, I and that adds to the apathy and that adds to the self-hatred and adds to retreating oneself from politics no one wants to expose themselves like that
2: yeah this isn't a very salient issue the connection between you know not being able to pay your rent and uh you know this just being boring to normal people it's not clear you know what what are the economic forces that are driving this and cool to see you know if there are ways to connect issues that people are already very passionate about um you know like lgbt rights race these things these things really do have an underpinning as we've led on a little bit in our discussion um to to the fact that we have these really bad housing policies so we mentioned race right but if you're living in your parents um of children and you happen to be gay you, you know this uh they th- This creates an incredible leverage over personal decisions that you're allowed to make without you know e- economic impunity from from older people who are who are setting the policies that are you know governing your existence
0: <laughs> well in in every sort of way, you know prejudice is tended when you take away, uh, alternatives, when you take away different choices you can make, it tends to mean that you're paying more for, for everything. If you talk about when housing was just segregated, uh, subpar housing in, in the parts where, the, where blacks could live would cost far more money, and they'd have far less credit available to them just because, well, they can take what they can get. And I mean, I think in all sorts of ways, uh, a person who has who has alternatives is going to be able to. I mean, if a person can move, that's that is a luxury. If you can actually make the money to say, okay, I will leave, I mean, a lot of people that's going to cost more than they can, and they just will pay more and more every month.
1: Yeah, and some people have earnestly asked me why poor people just don't move out of the ghetto. Like, why don't they like people who all these people living in Camden, New Jersey? Why don't they move? Well, it's very very expensive. And yeah. people in America, I mean like you brought up um, in, yeah, in Europe, so. yeah, people in America are so attached to the individual being responsible for everything, being there, you know this, this rugged individualist there, this this actor, this powerful, in, in charge of their own destiny, when in fact they're really much more subject to forces outside of their own control than, than they are able to control.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, like, and this was actually kind of true early in our
1: in, in, yeah our the frontier history. days. Like, certainly. There was a
2: lot of land that you could go have for free. It was like, yeah, you can you can be master of your own destiny, but it has to go from here, you can't just oh, I can't go to San Francisco and just start mining gold and you know, have a little plot for myself.
0: But it lets you know how bad things were. I mean, read some of these frontier histories; it's even more morbid than the Oregon Trail. Like these people would go out for the frontier and they would just die on the way. Like, it was... They would say that things are so bad that I am, you know, going to risk so much. I mean, it makes you say, like, yeah, why don't you just move? I mean, you blacks living in the South after the Civil War, they were living in basically a different country that wanted to murder them and basically could murder them, and still so many stuck around. And I think that shows you, one, perhaps, some people still value a sense of place. I tend to think that if more people had it means, you... It, it takes a lot to agree to live a place when people just want to murder you. Well, now,
1: sometimes a, a sense of place and a family is all you have.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's very easy to say, oh, let's all move together. It's like, oh, good luck. You yeah. Know?
1: And it's why people continue to live in their parents' basements and be ashamed than move somewhere else and maybe strike it out, because that's, that's a huge risk and they're losing a lot.
0: Here's, here's a thread I was reading just the other day. This was uh, uh, a person, uh, I guess, had read uh, This is Rob Horning referring to uh, uh, something written called Kids These Days. Uh and it says, Millennials were assigned a kind of generational character that makes them seem responsible for the material conditions they've been raised in and trained for. They're the first generation to be raised in a world where work and leisure have fully collapsed into each other. Uh, since all work is also play, non-Millennials assert Millennials are always playing, whereas Millennials feel they're always working. Uh, they say that, in short, Millennials enter an economy in which labor as a counterbalancing force to capital has disappeared. Instead, workers are human capital, human startups whose entire lives must be entrepreneurial." It's kind of saying like a millennial doesn't feel like you can just work and this should be enough to get by. It's saying, well, you, from the time you go into school, what is the point of going to school? It's to build up your money-earning potential. So you're you're, investing in yourself. (laughs) So, yeah, you're investing in yourself so you can finally get a foot in the ladder and get a place. And we're seeing this in its most absurd degree here in the Bay Area. We're saying, like, okay, you invest in yourself. And even the people who, like, do, who do get... You know, an incredibly, you know, are lucky enough to get a very nice salary, are still feeling, well, you didn't invest yourself enough to really get your foot in the ladder. And it's just this weird system of just saying, yeah, just getting by isn't something that should come naturally. It's kind of millennials' fault for not making the system work for them. And,
2: yeah. and you know, it's illegal to, to discriminate against people for being um, too old in the hiring process, but it's actually not illegal to do the opposite. I, I mean, it, it is it is really strange if you think about like the last presidential election, right? It was all like a group of seventy year olds <laughs> against each other, right? So I, I really don't see us being represented fairly.
1: I think politics. I mean, like I said, going to meetings. I think politics really is is so much about the people you know, the people you're friends with, whose stories you know, how how much you know about how everything plays into everything else. I think it, it's it seems only natural that the people who have been around the most and who are the, the head of a political dynasty would be the ones running for the highest office, especially when it's such an such a tight and and competitive uh, system.
0: Well, why would you ever let go? I mean, but yeah, I did not vote for Prop 13. <laughs> you did not vote for Prop 13. But it's 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 very strange, and people would say it's actually it goes against all sorts of 14th Amendment protections that people are material materially harmed by decisions made long before they're born. And I'm, this is perhaps an idea of a society you move towards in which it's considered, if you do anything, it should be considered just as fair to be born generations later than to, you know, just be the people who get the benefits it's now. It's sort
2: of surprising for as many environmentalist Sierra Club type
0: oh, they're the in, in the Bay are. Area That's who crazy. use
2: this argument of, hey, you know, like this is unfair to future generations. But then when it comes to housing policy, they don't want to apply that rule.
1: Oh, no, because building housing is always... Environmentally destructive, so it must be fought at all costs.
2: Which is not true at all. It's really not. <laughs> Actually, it's... very dense urban cores are the most environmental way. Exactly to it's... build, not sprawling.
1: Exactly. So they're they're looking at the ta- tactical situation and saying, "Well, oh, the burrowing owls, the this, the that, the birds," and conveniently ignoring, or you know, selectively ignoring the strategic situation, which is, yes, we must build denser. We must free ourselves from. Cities that are designed for cars. Yeah, Palo Alto wanted to show that it had reduced its CO two impact,
0: and they showed all the things it did to reduce this. And I think it was like fifty percent in like uh, changing, you know, waste management, and like it, like another thirty percent of like better public fixtures and, and fluorescent like, light bulbs. Yeah, one percent was changing zoning to allow extra density. So of all the things Mm -hmm. they they, like said, well, well, you could imagine, and I, you know, if you want to reduce commutes, if you want to get cars off the road, if you want to get people driving less, which is one of the best things you can do,
1: they are just unwilling to do that. Well, that's at the root of all of these, the things that the nimbys get so worked up about. At the root of it is all about cars, driving, parking, roads, traffic is at the root of everything that the NIMBYs are complaining the most about. The only solution is to build a city that you don't need a car in. That will solve your traffic problem. That will solve your noise problem. That will solve your parking problem if we build cities that we don't need cars in. And I guess question two is, okay, you build a city. You're going
0: to need more infrastructure for density. Where does this money come from? Not from
1: rugged individualists, that's for sure.
0: Hey, genius, where are you going to pay for these subways? And and, and, and these same people, I mean, it's it's the question of what is the way that we have historically paid for cities? When you build a city, you know, the amount of wealth coming in the city increases, and this has always been a very reasonable tax base to pay for the infrastructure you need to cities. It's, it's, it's a cycle that makes sense. You build, then you take the taxes off the land value increase, and you put it back into subways. And in California, it's illegal. <laughs> so, it is not. Yeah, it's not allowed to do that. So, yeah, how are we ever going to... I mean, I'll, yeah, so I guess the question is, is there any chance politics is even worth anything until you know we really have a chance just to topple Prop 13? That's my question. I'm a pessimist saying we can get started the day after Prop 13 is, is toppled.
1: I think it's going to be an enormous project to get the voting public of California to that day. Yeah, You need to convince more people than the opposition, that this is something that's worth getting rid of, that it's in their best interest, you know, short-term, long-term, however you want to sell it, that getting rid of this is the way, that giving the government more money so that they can give more to you is a way forward in the future, and that's a big challenge. Because even people on the left really don't like the government and think of themselves as these these individuals that shouldn't be infringed upon.
2: Being on the left really I don't think it's really, like, malicious that, you know, we have these policies. I I just think it's sort of... Um, you know, it, it goes along with, with people who trust and the thought never occurs to them that these policies could actually be, you know, uh, going against their humanistic values in, in a way that they're, they're just not aware. But it is very difficult to sort of parse this out in terms that stand. This is the line, you know, you're standing on the bad side of this line by being for Proposition thirteen, and I, I think most people just aren't even aware that 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 they're taking this, you know, not not very humanistic uh, stand.
1: Yeah, or by staying out of politics, people are disillusioned with politics because politics and government are behind a lot of bad stuff. Look at the White House. Look at I get it. Kind of it kind of it seems to have started with the Vietnam War. That this just this 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 hatred of the government that they can't do anything right. They're inefficient. They taxes they never go down and all of this stuff, but we need to get people convinced again that the government can do something for them. Because if you let, if you leave them alone, if you ignore them, certain interests will still get their ear and they'll get their way, as they are doing right now.
0: So, what what do you feel? What do you feel is the role of idealism in all this? I guess too, we're talking in so much of the fact It's not really bad people in general. People don't support Prop 13 because they're evil but it does evil things. And if we could really show people that there's really no way that you can have a a flourishing society with evil policies, can you make people, can you force the moral question? Or how do how we all feel about the role of morality? Or or am (laughs) am I still just being a kook here? Just
2: need ba- like basic education, basic understanding of economic principles. You know, it's 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 nobody's fault if they support policies that they think are good because, you know, somebody has given them an overly simplistic explanation that just happens to, you know, we don't want to go along Randy. with their interests. Uh, so I guess that's it's good that we're making this show, um, but we <laughs> we need a much broader. Uh, you know, education campaign.
0: I mean, there's someone who said, I forget where this came from, saying, if you want to look at what is the best housing policy, and just the best policy of running government in general, look at everything California's done for the last 40 years and do the exact opposite. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Don't do a Prop 13. A Prop 13, it's, you know, it will hurt you, and it's incredibly hard (laughs) to undo. Don't do it. Uh, And. And still, we see, and this is something that happened in the uh, in the recent election. Pennsylvania had put an amendment, which uh, is starting to allow the ability for legislative powers in Pennsylvania to shift from property tax
1: to sales and income tax. It's by municipalities. It's local. It's by municipalities, right?
0: Yes. I mean, so this will allow, I think, local levels to basically say, we will, you, we will, we will lower the tax burden on property tax. Up to zero, because previously they had yeah. to at least pay for half. Uh, you know, uh, there was there was strict limits. This came hand in hand. Some people they tried to SB seventy six, Senate Bill seventy six in Pennsylvania, tried to eliminate the property tax entirely. Which I mean, that would in- move entirely to state income taxes and, and sales, sales tax, taxes. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Which, but like, it's it's kind of weird this policy that. I feel there's any chance there's going to be a stigma on policy that say like this is the kind of policy this is taboo this is the thing you don't do even if you don't understand it, uh, but people are just they're they're just running full speed into it. I don't know.
2: Don't discriminate on the basis of how wealthy someone is. Like a sales tax, it doesn't matter if you're rich, it doesn't matter if you're poor. When you go out and buy whatever you buy, you're going to be you're going to be paying a, a tax on that, and if you get more of your revenue that that don't discriminate on the basis of wealth uh, yeah that that's automatically making your whole tax system more regressive more harmful to poor people but yet th- there's all of these well-meaning people in society who say oh yeah you know I want to I want a flat tax and I want sales t- tax I, I mean th- these are not all the same group but you know they they seem to be supporting it for very noble reasons but Analyze the effects <laughs> of these taxes. They they're not helpful at all. They're very harmful. Well,
1: there's there's this there's a, a section of this Pennsylvania bill that municipalities have to show where the money will come from before they slash the taxes. And I think that's very interesting.
0: As as opposed to just slashing it first and then declaring, "Oh, we can't pay for stuff. Please please
1: help us out." Maybe it will end up working like that because yeah. sales and income taxes are unpredictable. Yeah. If maybe it looks like it'll pencil out and then they cut the taxes, and all of a sudden they're at a massive deficit, uh, there's no going back, probably.
0: I mean, you can look at the ineffectiveness. Like, if Howard Jarvis was not actually meaning to create Prop 13 Wonderland, if, if Howard Jarvis was just meaning, back when he made Prop 13, to say, let's just get rid of taxes, he did the worst job of it possible, because all he did is in, in lowering property tax is create the same burden at the state level. California income taxes have soared. Sales taxes are higher than, I, I think, almost any other state. And people, on average, still pay about middle of the country for property tax.
1: Yeah, It just comes disproportionately from newer people. There's this massive perception that California is a really high-tax state. And to people who are newcomers, to people who are renters, that is absolutely true. The silent majority of people who are, are really benefiting from this are the longtime homeowners. Um, like people I know who are new home buyers, they just are so fired up about taxes. They hate paying so much tax, but they are sub- they are subsidizing the longtime homeowners, and they they don't even know it. And that makes them more bitter against taxes. That makes them more bitter about politics, more apathetic, more anti tax, and more anti government. Even though the ones they're the ones that are being hurt the most and would benefit the most from Prop 13 reform. And if-
2: it's you get the opposite perception in places that get a lot of their revenue from uh, property, specifically land, like. Hong Kong and Singapore, right? Everybody, you know, all the libertarians will tell you, yeah, the, you know, these are like more akin to libertarian paradises and see how well they do and look how low taxes they have. And it's not that they have low taxes per se. It's just that those taxes aren't coming, uh, you know, living on productive activities, sales taxes, income taxes, th- things like that. It's, it's, you know, it, it is coming from from land. So... It's weird how that, you know, that that perception.
0: I mean, works. if if Howard Jarvis, yeah, was saying, "Hey, let's be more like Hong Kong. Let's try to lower income taxes and, you know, and 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 sales taxes to nothing and corporate taxes very low and put more of the burden on property tax." I think he would have actually done more to actually reduce the average tax burden to middle-class Americans. I'm absolutely positive it would because the the benefits from Prop 13 have accrued to the Ultra ultra wealthy at the expense of middle class taxpayers. Uh, I mean, that's that's a
1: thing. Uh, I, I could. But it is now at the time it was a big boon and the, the security and safety, but not forty years on.
0: Sure. I mean, I guess you'd say in aggregate. <laughs> yeah. Saying, yes. In
1: aggregate and with time.
0: Yes. Um, in, in, in even, I mean, even even people who tend to be seen as conservative economists, uh, Milton Friedman. Uh, I could uh, you know play this this uh, piece. I might try to insert it. Uh, uh, the property tax is the least bad tax in his idea. The property tax is something which is going to do the least harm at, at allowing small businesses and industry to run. It will have the least harm on, on taxpayers. And he was an anti-tax guy. But it's the most unpopular tax. And it's, it's a big question of, of why income tax it disappears from your cheque. You know, every time you do it, you don't even feel it. It just disappears. It's like, okay, I, it's, it's fine. A uh, property tax, people actually do have to send a bill, and people don't like that. I, I really wonder what the practical. Well, she...
2: the, well, the other thing that Milton Friedman says is that uh, one way that you could make the property tax much more um, just likable is if you were levying it more frequently. So if you could do it every day, that would be better than if you did it every week, than if you did it every month. But unfortunately, you pay it all at the end of the year, and it you know it's this big sum, and it makes people angry.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you had a withholding scheme— There's no reason it has to be calculated like that. I don't know why
2: yeah, it is. And
1: people's anger is clearly important. I think, like, sentiment—I mean, you're talking about idealism. Yeah. And idealism, I think, is very important because it, it battles this kind of—this huge—this sentiment that is behind things like like Prop 13— that was a result of a huge amount of negative sentiment and someone whipping it up properly with his own brand of idealism.
0: Absolutely yeah, I mean absolutely. And I think you and I think that there are ways to have you need to have emotional appeal on your side. Absolutely. You're never going to appeal to people with a big stack of of,
1: of tax analysis and say, okay, read it and weep, guys. <laughs> yeah. I mean politics is only getting more emotional and only getting more immediate and, and visceral and And charged on the left and on the right. It's only getting like there's there's less patience and just more and more need for yelling and action and, and immediate appeal. I mean, what I worry about, I guess maybe one big thing, you know, 40 years ago,
0: conservative, you know, conservative movements, they would need people like Milton Friedman to say, you know, I am you know like i'm a genius and a respected economist i do a lot of actual work and here are a lot of actually cogent analysis and you actually you know try to believe it right now there's some degree
2: of decency and merit have to you know underpin what you're (laughs) you're saying maybe you you can't just be like well i have this strong amygdalic response therefore you know (laughs) screw everyone else
0: i'm watching like responses to the uh you know to the uh, new uh g o p tax plan, and it's just a lot of people saying it's like it's like well we want we want less taxes drain the swamp, and then you put a bunch of memes about like how you know telephones were different forty years ago and it's i mean it's just all these like weird i mean there's no there is no one who really believes that there is any kind of truth in analysis or ideas in like how what is fairness in in taxes
1: yeah or or how they should. Or thinking about things with their own brain instead of just looking at something and be, oh, this is good. My guy did this; it's it's good for me, even though it really could hurt a lot of people. I mean, we've we've decentralized our thinking.
0: We now memes do the work for us. We just listen to the memes on, on our on our social media. Instead, and on the news too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, that's a question. When is the first meme only nightly news going to be? It's it's got to be a matter of time. Uh. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. So, uh, so between all the things, is the is the right answer? There's a lot of truth in everything. You need strong politics. You need kind of looking at you know escalating to a, a more centralized authority, either judicial or legislative, as necessary. And you need some idealism. I, I don't know if that's is that too pat.
1: I mean, you need to figure out how to how to get people thinking, get people on your side, and start. Gathering them up in a big mass to to vote for the right things, and there is a place in that process for idealism, certainly, and for making friends, meeting people, just doing a lot of talking, do a lot of convincing, doing a lot of teaching, and I, I think that's all incredibly important. What, what can people anything.
2: do to sort of get more involved and, and and help you out with with what you're focused on?
1: Uh, come to your city council meetings and just and just listen, and you know, strike up a so conversation like a with someone
2: they can go to to, to get updates from you.
1: Well, Palo Alto Forward's website will be, will be, in a, will be a good. They, I, there's not a lot of events on the calendar right now, um, but and if for people who, and again, this is so local that people who live in Palo Alto should check out Palo Alto Forward. People who live in the East Bay should check out East Bay. For everyone, almost anyone who lives in the Bay Area should certainly check out um, EMB Action Meetings. They all have calendars. They all have places you can go and people you can talk to, people you can meet. Every time I go, I meet people who've, who are going there for the first time. And I get to explain, freshly explain, um, floor area ratios and height limits and Prop 13 and all these other things. And you start to sharpen your own skills at at, at, um, at teaching and explaining and convincing. And,
2: and it's not boring or
1: intimidating? It's people very boring. <laughs> it. It's very boring. It's very intimidating, especially giving public comment. But, I mean but well, i just i just
2: mean the meetings where you can make
1: friends and oh it, it's i mean those those certainly are much less boring but yeah also intimidating but
0: it, it's it's a gateway boring it's a yeah, exactly. kind of thing it's it seems a little bit fun a lot of a lot of you know a little little bit of boring sneaks in to get you ready to get really boring in the future
1: well yeah you start you start savoring like the you you start savoring the boring you savoring the process
0: so uh and where can people go for more information on this
1: any um Palo Alto forwards website's great any um there's a podcast called the Infill Podcast done by uh, the leadership of um, Yimby Action. That's definitely worth checking out. Certainly, just for this education factor, you need to soak up a huge amount. Um, yeah, check out what Sonia Trauss is tweeting or what Laura Clark is tweeting. Kim okay, I-Cutler. Yeah.
0: Of, it's There is more people chattering about it than there yes. has been at any time in the past. And I guess that's- that's, it's encouraging.
1: Yeah, I mean, talk is talk is cheap, but it doesn't mean it's not important and that there aren't a lot of people who have really important stuff to say.
0: Well, you can't get anywhere unless you talk first, I guess. Yeah. And uh, speaking of that, thank you very much for uh, talking to us here today. It's been, yeah, it's been a pleasure.
1: So yeah, this has been the Henry George Program
0: here on KCSU Stanford. Or if you want to see previous uh, episodes of the Henry George Program, you can tune into the website, seethecat.org. This is a presentation of KCSU Stanford.